You're listening to Trademarks Made Easy. Trademarks Made Easy is the podcast focused on helping brand owners in the e-commerce space. With your host, Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. But don't worry, you won't find too much legalese here. Well, hey there, I'm your host, Susie Hickson, also known as the Private Label Lawyer. Now, in today's episode, I'm speaking with Andy Hooper, the CEO of Global E-Commerce Experts. They are located in the United Kingdom, and they support clients from around the world and help them expand their businesses into the EU markets with a primary focus on e-commerce sellers. They really help these sellers with VAT compliance, 3PL services, account management, social media, and product development and consultancy. So creating this interview with Andy was so much fun. He loves his work and you can just feel his enthusiasm and energy even through the interwebs. And I'm really confident you're going to feel it too. And one really funny thing about this interview in particular is that Andy is so animated that when we were recording, his hand flew in the air and hit the mute button on his mic. So that was kind of funny. And so there is a little bit of dead silence, but we've done our best to edit that out. So if you, if you come across this in part one or part two, just a little heads up there. Now, if you're going to be watching this on YouTube at some point, you are going to get to see the hilarity. So again, Andy just loves his work. And I personally love working with people who are enthusiastic and excited about what they do. And whether or not they hit the mute button, I think that's fantastic. Like Gary Wang, who I had a few weeks ago on the podcast from AD20 Sourcing, Andy also is just such a wealth of information that, like I mentioned a minute ago, I actually had to break this interview up into two parts. So make sure you grab some paper and a pen. Yeah, I like my note-taking old school. And get ready, there's a lot of information here. So let's get started with part one, and I will see you on the other side. Thank you so much for being here, Andy. Yeah, no problem at all. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, it's really exciting to be on. <laughs> it's more exciting for me. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about Andy, about you as a person and kind of how you got into this business. I always like to know people's background and what led them to where they are right now. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, based in London, uh, now south of London here in the UK, uh, you probably get that from my um from my accent, I suppose. So yeah, we're, we're based here in the UK and yeah, I've lived here all my life, although I've traveled a fair bit. We were just talking off air about, you know, some of the locations I've been to in the States and, and visited around and, and seen the coastal cities, shall we say, but we haven't quite made it inland. Journey-wise, my journey's a little bit, well, like any, I suppose, person who runs a business is probably not a straightforward one. Uh, I started off, I left school and work for John Lewis in retail, which is a very large department store here in the UK. Uh, started off there as a retail manager and decided that 
I didn't want to work in retail any longer. I wanted to work in sales. So off I went and worked in sales, which was amazing. Selling pest control of, of all things. What an amazing experience. So if you ever want to sell anything, sell something completely off the wall <laughs> is my advice. Pests will always be there. <laughs> they will indeed, exactly. So that, that was a, a great experience. And then from there, I was sort of quite young at the time. I think I was 24 and I was sort of, life was becoming quite serious. And I'm like, life shouldn't be this serious. And one of my friends came into the pub. We was at the pub drinking on a Sunday night and said, I said, you know, you know use the sort of questions. What are you doing? Where are you going? He's like, I'm off to work abroad for six months. I mean, you're doing what? He said, yeah, I'm going to go. I booked a holiday and we fly out on Friday. We're just going to happens. I'm going to go work in a bar in Greece. And I was like, what? You're joking. Couldn't believe it. Thought it was absolutely bonkers. Anyway, on the Monday, if anyone who's listened been in had a bad day, know what I feel like. So I walked in, had a bad day selling, thought, this isn't for me. Handed my notice in on the Friday through to Greece and spent six months working in a bar. Absolute amazing experience. Sure. But whilst I was there, something there was a lot of sailing and windsurfing going on, and I've sailed and windsurfed all my life. And I was like, I need to go and teach sailing. So off I went and worked on the beach while I was there, teaching windsurfing and sailing. And then for the next 15 years, really, I went and taught sailing and windsurfing around the world, which was an amazing experience. Uh, I got to see a huge amount of stuff. And then when I came back, it was like, well, I probably better get a job now, um, was <laughs> the experience that went on. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you get to the end of that life, really. And you know, for 10 years, I worked and managed a lot of sailing clubs, worked and helped grow the sport of sailing here in the UK, which was amazing. So I did that for a long time. But whilst I was along that journey was when I started thinking, there's more to life than just working for someone. How do I grow as an individual? How do I develop further what I've done? How do I make more money was thought of the process because I was capped where I was. So what I did is I started a photography business and I started selling stuff on Amazon. I did wedding photography, which was amazing. Uh, and I still do the odd wedding. I do about five a year because I absolutely love it. It's great fun. You meet lots of different people and you just get to help people on the most exciting day of their life. Like what's, what, there's nothing not to like. You better not mess up. <laughs> no, well, yes, there is that. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I would think the stress would be out of control for, for wedding photographers. Do you know what? It's the stress that I actually enjoy. So the, the stress of, you know, making sure everything's right, working with mother-in-laws, mothers of the brides is really quite stressful and trying to organize everyone. I just enjoy the stress, I guess is what it is. <laughs> so basically what happened was I needed to earn some extra money. We wanted to deposit for a house. You know, I wanted to set up a business. So the, the wedding photography is a great way of doing that. And then selling products on Amazon was another way, great way of doing that. So I started off selling silicon watches because they were really big. I don't know, must have been 10 years ago. I bought some silicon watches cheap from China, brought them over, bought them for 20 or 30 pence, whatever it was at the time, sold them for five, six, seven pounds, make a massive profit per one, reinvested it, recycled, great. Made a, made a decent bit of money and sort of thought that was great. Achieved what I needed to do. Hey, Andy, I might have lost your sound. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Is okay. that better? You were so excited with what you were saying. You actually hit the <laughs> I mute and myself. I love that though. I love that because <laughs> like people don't see people who are listening to the podcast, like they can't see that not only does Andy have an awesome podcast mic, 
which if you're watching it via YouTube, you're going to see it. But Andy is very excited about his his experiences and he's very animated in the way he talks, <laughs> and I, which is awesome. And I think that he might have actually accidentally <laughs> hit his um, mute button, but he was, we, he was talking about his photography business and how it's sort of integrated into, I guess, kind of was a segue into the products that he ended up selling. And it sounds like this experience that you had with, with all the photography probably worked really well for, for product photography as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the link of everything we've done moving on is, you know, from a product photography. And I suppose that where this all sort of came about, I did some work with a, yeah, we've got a business partner, started doing some work together. And, and that's then when this business sort of evolved, if you like. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, like a lot of people that have, you know, I don't know, entrepreneur is the, the fab word, isn't it? But people that have had different businesses, different ideas that migrate from one into the other. Uh, so basically what happened was we migrated that and a few different things we were doing into, you know, what did we really want to do? What did we really want to achieve? Which led to where we are today. You know, we sort of focused in and zoned in on what that was. So you have your business partner and you all, I mean, do you think that you would be where you are right now if you hadn't have met that person or hadn't have, kind of form that relationship with your business partner? No, without a shadow of a doubt. No, it was sort of, yeah, we met and it, we discussed things and it just, there was just a natural progression from what they were doing, what I was doing. You know, that conversation, lots of things happening was, well, this works quite nicely together. You know, how can we do a bit of this, bit of that? Who do we really want to serve and how do we want to support them and help them? And if we were to do that, what does that look like? And how do we go about doing that? I think that it's it's great to be independent. Like there's a lot of advantages to being a solo entrepreneur. But when you are working with a partner like that and you're bouncing ideas off of each other and you get the opportunity to do that and there's someone that you really collaborate well with, then I feel like two brains working together is greater than the two individual ones on their own and that's because that you all have that collaborative relationship and so it sounds like this relationship is what brought you to global e-commerce experts yeah totally yeah and that's sort of how that you know we was doing a menagerie of different things we pulled everything into a, a pot if you like and looked at what we were doing that could really focus and it was like well yeah this is this is what we want to do this is what we want to achieve we're already doing a bit of this you're already doing a bit of this let's merge that together let's the shape that into something that's that can really help people. And that's where, you know, well, who do you want to serve? Well, we want to serve typically American sellers expanding into Europe. That's who we want to serve. And if we want to see them do that successfully, what do we need to do that achieves that in order for them to come over and it be a success? So this is where global e-commerce experts has I guess, arisen. And, and how did you come up with that name for, for this company? And I always ask this question. I think it's really important as a brand, you know, as someone who loves trademarks and naming, I always like to ask people, well, how'd you come up with the name? Were you all brainstorming or were you just like, okay, this is it. This is what we do. I'd love to know sort of the background of that. Yeah. I think there was the two sides to that. I think that, I think there was a bit of a brainstorming session. I think there were, what, what is it that we're really trying to achieve how do you be perceived and what does that then look like? You know, we talk a lot about how we help currently help sellers expand from you know, the rest of the world into the EU. That's our core focus. That's our core business. 
but actually we want to, we do want to you know in our sort of next three three years or so is to be doing that worldwide you know that's where the global part comes from e-commerce is that's who we serve e-commerce sellers and you know we want to make people experts we want to you know, we want to you know, get across that you know we will make sure we do that professionally for you that you, know, you can't say we're e-commerce professionals. It didn't quite sound right. You're merging our experience. We're merging all of our years of experience. It does make us experts in our field. And we, so the e-commerce experts, I think, was part of what we really wanted to do and believe in. And we didn't want to focus that in on one niche market. So, you know, we, we do sort of di- slightly different bits of the e-commerce journey and we didn't want to say we were a VAT business or a warehouse business. So we had to make it quite generic to cover those different bases. So you all are being contacted probably on a daily basis, probably on an hourly basis from US-based um, entities who are interested in possibly expanding their e-commerce businesses into the EU. Why should people consider expanding into the EU? What is the advantage for them? Because as we know, it's going to cost them money to do this, right? Like anytime you expand into a new market. So there has to be some ROI there. What is that ROI? What are people seeing as being the biggest advantages into looking to the European Union market for their their private label e-commerce businesses? Yeah, I think that the first thing to say is that the EU market as a whole, and there's five marketplaces. So there's France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the UK. There are five marketplaces. Broadly, the market size is the same size as the North American market when you pull them all together in Europe. So there's 27 countries in the EU, and those five marketplaces look after all of those countries. So that's the first thing. So the, the market is about the same size. So when you're looking at how much you could sell, you know, in broad terms, in theory, you could say, well, we could sell the same amount. Now, it never quite works out exactly like that because the marketplaces are much further spread apart. The language barrier in the five different countries, five different languages is another barrier. And the other countries, you know, Poland, Czech Republic, a lot of other countries where there aren't marketplaces, but there's a lot of buyers. So, you know, there's, there's other areas that, that link into that. It's not a case of, we'll just put an English listing up and it will cover everyone because no. it doesn't. <laughs> it takes a lot more work. So I think the advantages are, for me, there's several. One, there's a massive market here that is untapped for a lot of products that might not be available here in the UK. The second thing is, if you don't expand your products, somebody else will. That's the next, the next part. And, and the other thing is, it is hard work expanding into a new marketplace. Of course it is. You know, it is going to be difficult. There is a huge amount to do and there are costs that are involved. However, if you are a good sized seller in the US, then you take the same principles, the same methodology you use on that business for the UU marketplaces and you use the same process. It's not like going from Amazon to eBay, where there's two different marketplaces, you're going from Amazon in the US to Amazon in the UK. The seller centrals look exactly the same. Some of the layout is slightly different in as far as, you know, if you go on the one tab, 
everything's not quite the same. They roll out things in the States before they roll them out in the EU. So some things aren't available. So for example, the first thing that comes to mind is like the earlier reviewer program. That isn't available in the EU yet. Promotions is under a different tab. Again, that's, that's, you know, it's just about knowing where those differences are. You're going from one marketplace to the other. If you've made it a success in the States, there's no reason why you use the same methodology, the same principles, the same advertising keywords and all the information that you currently use. Transfer that information. It's relatively straightforward. Now, I'm not saying that doesn't involve a huge amount of work. And the ROI is a lot smaller to start off with. So the ROI starts off smaller, but as the market gets bigger, it, you, know, you get the same ROI roughly as what you'll end up in the States. But that takes time. Right. Anyone who's launched products in the States will know that actually for the first few shipments, quite often, it's just about sales velocity. Get those products out into the, into the, onto the marketplace, sell, 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 build up sales velocity, and then make the money on the remaining shipments after that. It's no different to here in the UK. That's interesting. So the customer base in the EU, do they have the same demands or more demands than US-based customers? Like, I'm just curious as to sophistication of the consumer in the EU versus the US. Are certain customer, do you notice that customers in the EU, for example, demand you know, like a higher quality, or maybe they're looking more for organic products or products that are produced sustainably. Do you notice anything like, like that in the European Union with respect to the, the consumer demand? The ecological, environmentally friendly, sustainable product is critical. Anything that comes in plastic, they're really not interested in. So those sort of sustainable ecological products or how things come to them is crucial. They're definitely interested in that. Uh, the one big difference that we do know is that the returns is significantly less in the European market. Interesting. And one of the reasons we believe that is, and this is not, this is not a hard fact science, but this is a gut feel, is that in the States, if you want to return something, you just leave it with the doorman, you ask them to pick it up from there, they come and collect it, they take it away. We do not have any serviced properties in the eu particularly there are a few in london but much smaller quantities than in the states so it's a little more challenging to return something in the eu <laughs> it's just a pain to return something so yeah. they've yeah. got to take it to the post office which means they typically don't do that Although, interestingly they are starting to develop partnerships with stores where you could take that back and do your returns at a store so I think that will change over the next three to five years. But initially, at the moment, the number of returns is significantly less. But they definitely want higher quality products. So if they want a cheap Chinese product, they're happy to go on eBay and buy that. If they want a good quality product, they shop on Amazon for that. And that's how the market differences differs. You know, if they want a secondhand product, cheap product, they'll get it on eBay because it doesn't really matter. If they want a quality product, they'll shop on Amazon. Right. Let me ask you this, and this might be a little bit of a diversion, but I'm curious as to how you're seeing the implications of Brexit with all of this. Now, forgive me because 
I'm a little behind on the news these days. <laughs> I'm trying to like distance myself a little bit from media, but you know, I know that it, there's been a lot of conversation about Brexit in the U.S. And I'm curious as to how you foresee, assuming that this proceeds, how this could impact your business specifically and how it could possibly impact sellers who are interested in going into the EU and selling, but may not, it might be a little different in, in the UK if, if, if Brexit actually happens. Now, of course, you might say it's never going to happen, <laughs> you know, so I, I don't, I don't know. I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that, though. So Brexit, there's probably the second word I might use after Brexit is mess. Brexit is, um, I think, has been a bit of a, it's probably not our, our most glorious moment, should we say. I think that uh, the Brexit situation is something that's just ongoing, where people voted for it or didn't vote for it. And there's lots of discussion, you know, we, we want another referendum, we want this, we want that. You the long and short of it is the UK population as a democratic society voted to leave the EU. That, that, that's the, the fundamental key point. Whether we agree or disagree with it is another conversation, really. And we now have to prepare for the options coming forward. So we were originally supposed to leave the EU on the 30, 27th, 20, 29th of May, right. was, or right. 31st of May, uh, March, sorry, going completely crazy. Yeah, just recently. So, yeah, so the end of March when we were originally supposed to leave. Now, the Prime Minister Theresa May at the time basically created an agreement with the EU and said, this is our Brexit deal. She then came back to Parliament and said, here's the deal I've agreed with the EU. And basically the Parliament who decides you know, what happens and, and what's legal basically said, that deal's rubbish, we're not voting for it. So we don't want it. So that went backwards and forwards a huge amount of times. And then what happened was, is that uh, we then went back to the EU and said, this isn't working. We need to extend it. We extended it to a date in June. And that date was around about now, give or take, actually. <laughs> June. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Uh, so, um, but then basically what happened was, Theresa May, as the, as the Prime Minister, still couldn't get agreement from Parliament. So she went to the EU and said, I can't get agreement. We need a much further date further down the line. And that date is now the 31st of October this year. And she's so just 31st, resigned, right? Okay, yes. Yeah. She's like, I'm over this. I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and she has, been, she has been given what I would call a poison chalice. So she didn't actually vote. She never wanted to leave the EU. She wanted to stay in the EU. And the, the, the politicians that actually wanted to leave said, oh, no, I don't want to be prime minister. You do it. Uh, so she sort of got <laughs> given the, the poison chalice as far as I'm concerned. I think she's done a great job. And I think whoever did it would have been in the same situation. Uh, pretty much. So we've got a new date of leaving on the 31st of October. There's still several options. We can leave with a deal, which basically means we get a deal from the EU and whatever that deal is, we, we leave on the 31st of October and we continue trading. You know, the first thing to say is that when we do leave the EU, there's a two-year window to transfer. So nothing will happen on the 31st of October. We've still got two years to implement everything before it actually goes live and nothing happens. Right? So there's, there's still a caveat in there. It's like a transition the period, like a buffer period, sort of. Totally that. Exactly that. Now, what could happen on the 31st of October is that we don't agree a deal and we get something called a no deal. 
A no deal means we leave the EU without a deal, and therefore everything we know as is basically goes. So, for example, the one thing that a lot of sellers will be that use is what we call a customs union. So what happens is you bring your goods to us or to the UK and Amazon ships your goods through the European Fulfillment Network or Pan-European to all the different countries, no problems at all. You just pay one import VAT and import duty coming into the UK. Nice That's and simple. the current situation, right? That's current situation. Okay, okay. I think yep. I see where this might be going. <laughs> yeah. Now, if we get a no deal, what would happen is you send your goods to the UK you then pay taxes and VAT coming into the UK. If you then wanted to ship your goods to the EU, you then have to pay import VAT and duty going into those countries. Mm. That's what could happen should we leave the EU with no deal. Now, that, that's a very big if because the majority of countries wouldn't want that because it doesn't matter whether you're Germany. And if you think about Germany with BMW, Mercedes, Porsche, of these high luxury brands that sell a huge amount of cars to the uk their prices will go up 15 percent overnight mm -hmm. now clearly they don't want that to happen they, yeah. the german government won't want that to happen so there's a lot of play to enable us to stay in the customs union which my personal opinion is will probably happen so let me get clarification here yeah there's a customs union that's kind of separate and apart, right? So in this way, all of the entities in Europe or countries in Europe that are part of the European Union can kind of play together. And then if Brexit is triggered officially in October, UK could still potentially be a part of this customs union. Exactly. And so that would therefore assist with customs, like, I guess, having to pay all those additional fees. And, and at the end of the day, it would help the sellers. Totally. And that's exactly it. Okay. I just want to make sure I understood that. Yeah, yeah. And then the best way to look at that from a state's point of view is that if you imagine you've got all the different states around the US, and then one of those states decides it doesn't want to be part of the US anymore, you know, every time you send something to that state, there would be import duty, just like there is when you send goods to the states anyway. And the reality is that one state would still want to be part of that process because they lose money. And the others would as well. So why would they do that? I think that the Brexit is a big red herring. And a lot of customers said to us, you know, well, Brexit is a big issue. And I said, look, until it's signed and sealed, don't put anything off. Because you right. could still, you know, we keep extending it. And all you're doing is delaying your business and, and, and your profits in order because, oh, this might happen. Just get on with it. Yeah. It'll, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's one of those situations where people put the onus on on the fact that they are afraid of change on something external whereas they're actually just scared to pull the trigger do you know what i mean like that because yeah. the concern about brexit is so is so lofty and it may or may not ever happen and at the end of the day it sounds like the the member you know the the um, UK and the European Union are going to take measures to make that make any type of Brexit like the practical implications as as harmless as possible. Obviously, right? Like, because we don't want to see anything that's going to hurt UK's economy or the European Union as a whole. Because at the end of the day, if Ural's economy is is impacted really negatively by this, then 
we're going to feel it here in the U.S. So it seems like there are certain measures that are going to be taken to hopefully prevent that from happening. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, there is still one thing at play here. And one of those things is that the new prime minister, because Theresa May has stood down and we're looking for a new prime minister, there could be a new play here where they say, actually, we want another referendum. So they could say, well, actually, we want another referendum. And actually, Brexit might not even happen at all. Sure. You know, I, I think there, there, there are several things. You don't say, you know, expanding based on Brexit may or may not happen because at the end of the day, it probably won't. It probably will. But if it does, it will probably be business as usual because that's what everyone in the EU needs. Yeah, that's what everyone wants yeah. and needs. Yeah. That's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you loved this interview with Andy Hooper. I know I did. I really hope you found it of value. Now, in our next episode, we're going to dive into part two with Andy Hooper. So make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening so you don't miss anything. And remember, never stop learning. Thanks for listening to Trademarks Made Easy with Susie Hickson, the private label lawyer. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe anywhere you find podcasts or at theprivatelabellawyer.com. Remember, the information provided in the Trademarks Made Easy podcast should not be construed as legal advice. It's for informational and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered a substitute for legal advice. Also, I'm not your attorney. You should engage with an attorney to discuss your specific legal issues. And finally, while I have taken precautions to ensure that the content of my podcast is current and accurate, errors can occur, and thankfully, like us, the laws are ever-evolving. <laughs>